Luxor Diamonds of Excellence. So close, you can thank your lucky stars. If you take a short drive up north from where Tony's lived his whole life, you'll reach the luxurious Tulalip Resort Casino. It's on Tulalip tribal land, hence the name, and there's tribal iconography all over the place. Eagles and whales and wolves all lead the way to a casino floor that sparkles like an underwater kingdom. For Tony and his mom Candy, Candy with a K, it was the perfect getaway. He liked to take her up there whenever he could, even in the worst of times, so they could blow off steam and pretend to be in another world for a few hours. That was pretty much the one thing she always found joy in was going out to the casino and playing the slot machines, and, uh, and we did that often. You know, which I know seems silly, like you're struggling financially, you probably, the last thing you need to do is go to a casino, but I knew my mom didn't have a whole lot of time left, and that was the thing she enjoyed the most. Tony's dad, Leonard, died in 2007, and after that, Candy's health started to decline. She ended up on oxygen and had trouble getting around by herself. So usually, when Tony took her to Tulalip, they'd have a nice dinner at one of the resort restaurants. And then he would get her a wheelchair from the hotel concierge so that she'd have freedom to roll through the rows of slots, lost in the noise. She was in a wheelchair, so I'd be pushing her around or get her set up somewhere. And she could, you know, kind of get around on her own a bit, play some slots, have a good time. This was a bleak point in Tony's life. But I like imagining the two of them escaping for just a night into the high life at this fancy casino. I can picture Tony ordering a steak and his mom propped up in her wheelchair oxygen tank at her side. Probably a cup of coffee in her hand. I remember one time we went up there and I'd gotten comped a, a free room and the rooms up there were super nice. It's like Las Vegas style. Eventually, Tony got tired, but Candy was still raring to go. He left her set up at the slots by the elevator, figuring she'd come up to bed soon. And I think I fell asleep and woke up at like three or four in the morning and my mom's not even there. And she hadn't even been to the room yet. He panicked a bit ran downstairs and began frantically searching the casino floor. Now I'm all over the casino trying to find her. She'd been up all night playing slots and never even went to the room once. <laughs> the whole night, you know, that's how much fun she was having just doing her little thing. I wanted her to be happy. You know, she's my mom, I love her. And it was fun. I mean, I don't regret any of that. We had a blast. It's a good thing Tony got along so well with his mom because once Connor went to prison and Tony lost his dream job and all his money and had no place to live, Candy was the last person he could turn to. I'm Josh Dean, and this is Hooked, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. And in some respects, it's like the midlife crisis. Like, I didn't even want to live anymore. Part five. A legend is born. I was just so discouraged and, you know, I'd lost my career and everything was just going to shit and my family's struggling and my son's in prison, you know, for something ultimately that I was responsible for. And it was, man, it was just bad. It was early 2013 and Tony was totally at a loss. Without Connor, he found himself jumping straight into another codependent relationship this time with his mom. Tony had always been close with Candy. He grew up the second oldest of four in a tri-level house surrounded by fir trees in Linwood, Washington. I mean, we grew up in a nice home, 
with good, loving parents. They never fought or didn't drink ever or ever do any drugs. You know, we grew up in a nice middle-class neighborhood, and uh, she was a homemaker and, and was always there to take care of us. And, I mean, almost to a fault, she was always there for us. That was Candy's M.O., to be there for her kids no matter what. And in this very tough time for Tony, she was there again. He moved in with her, back into his childhood home for a bit. Then Candy sold it, and they moved together to a duplex next to Tony's sister Christy and her family. This whole time, Tony didn't try to hide his addiction from Candy. He couldn't have. And he says she was very understanding, as I guess a good mother would be. I can't ask Candy how it felt, unfortunately. She died in 2016, a year before I met Tony. There were no secrets between me and my mom. If, if there's one person that knew everything about what was going on in my life, it was my mom, and I never uh, kept anything from her. One person who was there during that time was Val, Tony's ex-girlfriend. She had a close relationship with Candy and stayed close with her even after the breakup. Tony did no wrong in her, <laughs> in her eyes. He was on a pedestal in that family. He was the golden child, and it didn't matter what was said about him negatively. She, it's not that she wouldn't accept it. She just, oh, it's fine. It's, nope, he's got it under control. That's not him. And it wasn't him. That, you know, this was just Tony for a few years. It wasn't the actual Tony. And so it was easy for her to just kind of ignore it all. Tony says that Candy wasn't ignoring anything. She just didn't know how else to help. You know, she would see how sick I get when I'm withdrawn. And, I mean, no one wants to see their kid sick. Of course, no one wants to see their kid do heroin either. But she knows that the only thing that's going to make me feel better is if I can go get a little 40 sack and, and do a shot. And it just went on and on for a long time. It's possible Candy may have understood some things about addiction that the rest of society is still coming around to. That it doesn't help, for instance, to look at addiction as a moral failure. That it's really a serious and chronic disease, not just some bad choice someone keeps making over and over again. And maybe Candy understood that when people dealing with substance abuse lose their support systems, their problems tend to get worse. I think uh, she just wanted to protect me, you know? She was doing her best, man. She always did her best to be the best mom she could be given the, the circumstances, but it, it tore her up, man. That's why they say, you know, your, your addiction doesn't just affect you, it, it affects everybody that loves you, man, in, in a very deep way, and it's, uh, yeah, it just it brings everybody down. But the arrangement was beneficial for Candy, too. Tony helped care for her, kept her company, and pitched in on bills when he had money. So for better or worse, mother and son were leaning on each other for support. And in that way, it's similar to the messy knot he and Connor were tangled up in back when they were living in a car. We were kind of in it together. You know, she was obviously was hoping that I would get some help and get clean. And, uh, and her health wasn't great. She was on oxygen at the time and definitely could not be alone. So, yeah. Candy was in her late 60s and had been smoking for decades. She had chronic COPD. I mean, she was in and out of the hospital a lot. She probably kind of needed you, right, to help take care of her. A absolutely. And, and I did do that. I mean, man, I, I did take care of my mom. I was there for her every day. 
and I made meals for her, did the laundry, helped her out when she needed to, to, to take a bath and, um, I mean, everything, you know, I was there every, every single day for her. For some important context, it was around this time that the opioid crisis entered a deadly new phase. If you look at a graph of overdose deaths, 2013 is when the line charting them per capita starts to look like it's climbing out of the foothills and going straight up a rock face. The CDC's dubbed this phase the third wave of the drug epidemic, from oxycodone to heroin and now fentanyl. Around this time, a synthetic opioid called fentanyl really exploded on the black market. Fentanyl is approximately 40 times stronger than heroin per milligram. And a lot of the fentanyl was manufactured illicitly in Mexico, using raw materials typically imported from China, another major producer. But lest you worry that Purdue Pharma wasn't still profiting from the opioid crisis, let me reassure you, Oxy raked in around $2.5 billion for its manufacture in 2013. In fact, Purdue's owners, the Sackler family, voted to pay themselves about $400 million from the company's earnings that year. And this is after the company pleaded guilty to a felony, along with three executives who pleaded guilty to misdemeanors for misrepresenting the addictive dangers of OxyContin. So to recap, Tony is unemployed, addicted, and living with his mother. Connor's doing hard time for a botched robbery fueled by opioid addiction. And the Sacklers will end the year almost half a billion dollars richer. Their reward for fueling an epidemic that's about to kill tens of thousands more people. Tony, meanwhile, he was still hoping there was a chance he could go back to his old job. Once the robbery charges against him were dismissed, he enlisted the help of the engineering union he joined when he was still at Boeing. I was working with the union fighting to get my job back, right? Saying that it was, they didn't have grounds to terminate me because um, I was on an approved medical leave at the time. And so initially the union was confident that they were gonna you know, represent me and they thought I had a good chance of getting my job back. But eventually, the union gave up its effort to get Tony his job back. And that was kind of a final straw for him, as if he needed another one. You know, the thing is, when you're, when you're struggling with addiction like that, the, <laughs> I mean, one thing you lose is hope. And when that fell apart, that was like my last thread of hope. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just threw in the towel. I was like, fuck it, man. I'm, I mean, I'm done. What am, what am I going to do now? I'm, I'm addicted to opiates. I just lost my career that I've worked at for 22 years. I mean, just like anybody else, you, you got to take care of your family somehow. And going out and getting another job at that point was, for me, because I was so messed up in my addiction, just wasn't an option. I did get unemployment for a few months, and then that, that got shut off. And after that, I had absolutely no income at all. With no money coming in, and his addiction driving every decision, Tony felt tremendous pressure to do something, anything, to feed that addiction and to take care of his mom. I felt like we were kind of like a team, like we were trying to make it work together. You know, she's getting her social security. Well, I got to do my part. Unfortunately, in the fog of that moment, the only way Tony could see to do his part was to take a big step in the wrong direction, right back into crime. But he didn't go back to robbing banks right away. At first, it was petty theft. Man, I was committing robberies left and right, to be honest with you. I, I can't really get into the specifics, but it was just small stuff enough to, you know, just to try to stay well. 
Tony is an open book about most everything. But these petty robberies he's mentioning here, he doesn't really like to talk about them. Whenever I'd bring this up, he'd dodge and weave. From what I can gather, he was robbing small businesses from members of his community, people who might have been struggling, just like he was. I think that Tony has a story he tells himself, and me, that the bank robbery stuff, while against the law, was at least justifiable, let's say. Those were big companies with big insurance policies. He's regretful, but not necessarily ashamed. But this petty crime stuff rattles that narrative. Remembering that he also stole from people, his own neighbors, makes him feel bad about himself today. Back then, it wasn't guilt that pushed him deeper into this life of crime. There just came a point where things were getting real tough and we had to be able to make rent and pay the bills, you know, the utilities and all these other things, and we needed more money. Money. It was a constant problem. Candy was never on top of her finances, and her favorite hobby was playing the slots after all. She was not good about managing her bank account and, you know, knowing exactly, balancing her checking account and whatnot. But this is what the banks do, and all of them do this. Let's say she has $50 in her checking account, and on a Saturday, she goes and makes a purchase for $20. And then later, she makes another purchase for $20. So those both should have cleared, right? But then on Sunday... Okay, this might sound like a math problem from middle school. But the point is, the bank finds a way to charge three fees for what was really just one overdraft. So that it ends up that she has three overdraft fees of $35. Maybe you're shaking your head here. Poor people are more likely to have lower balances, yet they're the most vulnerable to getting dinged for this very thing. Hardly breaking news, I know. But anyway, it made Tony furious. So she ends up with $105 in overdraft fees. One time, Tony was mad enough that he and Candy marched into her bank together to ask them to show some leniency. I remember going in there with my mom, dude, just hot as fucking, just hot, and arguing with the bank manager saying, you guys should not be allowed to do this. I mean, we're already struggling, and now you're going to add all these extra fees on. They don't budge, though. There's no, they're like, well, that's what it is. You know, you got to pay it. You got to pay all those fees. To Tony, this just seemed bluntly unfair. But beyond that, it's an experience that seems to have shaped his worldview or reinforce a worldview he already had. The rich get richer. The people with less money and less power get screwed. In Tony's mind, the banks were robbing them. The thing is, they're making a lot of their money off the, the people in our communities that are struggling the most. That's what pisses me off. I mean, it's, it's criminal. Because all the people that are getting hit by this are people just the lower level of our economy. You know, people that are struggling to get by, living paycheck to paycheck. Feeling stuck and hopeless and fueled by a seemingly endless supply of simmering indignation, Tony made a decision. No more petty theft or relying on his mom's small fixed income. We needed more money, and so I just decided it's time to switch over and start robbing banks. Let's be clear. Tony didn't just jump into bank robbery as tit-for-tat revenge against banks. He's not a modern-day Robin Hood. Tony jumped into bank robbery to pay for his heroin addiction. But that anger at banks, it was undeniably a factor. Like I said, at the end of the day, it doesn't make it right. That doesn't justify robbing a bank, but I'll tell you what, it sure makes it a lot easier. 
If Tony was going to rob a bank again, he was determined to do it right. He was an engineer, remember? A logical, pragmatic thinker, a problem solver. So he took a look back at that first attempt, the fiasco that landed Connor in jail. He'd been reckless. He'd let his desperation drive the act, which resulted in disaster. And he wasn't about to make that mistake again. This time, he'd crack the code. Thing is, it's sort of hard to fashion yourself as a steely-eyed bank robber when you live with your mom. Um, I mean, yeah, there, there definitely came a point where she knew what I was doing. Um, she most definitely did not approve of it. On the other hand, and this is Tony talking, not her, Candy was kind of useful, almost a resource. When Tony was in his 20s, his mom had worked as a bank teller herself, so she knew a thing or two about how banks operated. It was even before I started robbing banks, I think we had talked and she had, I think, unknowingly given me some tips, you know, that <laughs> came to mind later, you know what I mean? He already knew money held by banks is insured. In other words, the dollars a robber takes, those aren't a particular person's dollars. Every account holder in a bank is insulated from the robbery. No customer suffers. A real difference from property or small business theft, in Tony's mind, which matters when you're navigating by a somewhat functional, but mostly broken moral compass. But Candy shared an equally valuable fact as Tony mulled over his bank robbery idea. Tellers are trained and then ordered not to resist during a robbery. Here's a training video for bank tellers, instructing them on what to do. And remember, in the case of a robbery, no confrontations, no delays, no heroics. Don't be a hero. That's the standard policy. Tellers are ordered to comply for their own safety. So with that knowledge tucked away, Tony began to plan and practice. He started with one cardinal rule, work fast. Remember the microwave? I used the timer on the microwave just to kind of go through the motions of what I figured it would take me to get in, get the money, and get out the door. Basically. I figure as soon as I go into the bank, they're going to hit the silent alarm, right? Because they instantly know they're getting robbed, right? It's pretty obvious. So you're thinking, like, how much time do you have? Did 45 you... seconds. Based... based on what? I mean, that was just based on... I mean, not a lot of research, I can tell you that. I just figured the quicker I get in and get out, I know the police are coming, so I got to try to be quick about it. Obviously, Tony needed a disguise, something better than the Oakley sunglasses Connor had used the first time. If he was going to do this right, he'd have to make sure not to show his face. That would be a huge mistake. I mean, you wouldn't want to go in there and give him footage of your face because who knows? I mean, with today's technology and the way they can the cameras and even if you don't show your face you know it could come into play later that they can do measurements but he didn't want to overdo it either tony figured that conspicuous masks like the clowns and presidents you see in hollywood movies only make you more memorable so he went lo-fi and scrappy he kicked around a bunch of diy ideas masks made from items in his house everyday items of clothing that way he wasn't wearing or carrying anything that might attract attention as he's approaching the bank and he can essentially disappear as he walks away. These are the cut-up t-shirts and stretched beanies we've already talked about. The ones Tony showed me in his apartment. He was holding on to them, almost sentimentally. I used this many times in the beginning, like this was the first one I was doing. Um, so in that one, you would have the beanie on under your hood? Yeah, yeah, I would have a beanie on just like anybody else would be wearing a beanie with a hoodie up over it. So that was it. 
A gray beanie worn under a hoodie, plus a pair of gloves to prevent leaving fingerprints or DNA. His whole kit could fit in a large pocket. Finally, Tony needed a target. The perfect bank. In this case, it wasn't about getting the biggest payday. Quite the opposite. Not to keep going back to movie heists, but it's a good reference point that most of us share. Those heists where a team of people stake out banks and wait for armored cars or drill into vaults and steal millions. They're called takeover robberies, and they're very rare. I mean, you're not getting in the vault, that's for sure. Unless you have some inside scoop on the timing and when the vault, you know. I mean, you don't have an, uh, that kind of time unless you want to deal with the, the law enforcement outside when you walk out. Tony was going at it alone. He prioritized sleepier branches with fewer customers and easy access to freeway on-ramps. That way he could get out of the area, away from traffic and stoplights, as quickly as possible. Oh, and he needed a getaway vehicle. So I went and stole a truck because I figured, you know, if I'm in a stolen vehicle, there's no way they'd be able to trace it back to me if somebody got a license plate or, you know, or if they got some camera footage of the vehicle. One day in the parking lot outside of a local drugstore, Tony saw a man get out of a blue Ford Ranger pickup truck and leave it idling. He left his truck running and I just jumped in it and took off. It was an impulsive decision and one that haunted him a bit later on. I mean, I took his truck, left him stranded, and that's fucked up. And not only that, he lost all of his keys, right? He had a key ring with probably 20 keys on it to everything he owns and has access to. So that's, that's a huge pain in the ass for him. At the time, though, Tony was thinking only about what was going to happen next. On February 5th, 2013, he hopped into that blue pickup and headed toward a branch of Banner Bank, which sat along a six-lane boulevard in Everett. He took me on this same drive in a legally rented vehicle with a very loud turn signal on a sunny and cool day in July of 2020. Do you remember why you picked this one to start with? Well, I mean, Boeing's right down the street, so, I mean, I, you know, after 20-something years of working there and... You know, I used to come to this area a lot to go to lunch and stuff on my break, so I was very, very familiar with the area. It seems risky to rob a bank near your workplace, but Tony wasn't very worried about getting recognized. However, he had drawn a line at robbing his own bank. Well, I mean, BECU was the main one. Boeing Employees Credit Union. Yeah, you're not robbing that place. No? Hell no. <laughs> Why? They got security in there, for one, and they have these... Uh, they have, like, cash dispensers at each of the teller booths. So, yeah, I, that would be... And not to mention that, that place is always packed full of people. So why didn't you rob that Bank of America across the street? Uh, that one has security glass. Oh. And it's extremely busy. That's, like, a very busy bank. And getting out of there to get to the freeway is a hell of a lot harder. So there it is right there on the left. Right? Yeah, so this is the bank on the left. Banner Bank. It's a tan, single-story building with a slanted brown roof, like a pizza hut. Where would you have parked? So the, um, that Panda Express, there used to be a Denny's restaurant there. Are you familiar with Denny's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys have that? Yeah. yeah. We got it. Yeah. Oh, nice. Pulling to the DOC uh, parking lot. Oops. I'd missed the turn and ended up one lot over. What? <laughs> this is the Washington State DOC building. Department of Corrections? So, yeah, when I was on the ankle bracelet, yeah. this is where I'd have to come and report for doing my UAs. <laughs> Unexpected stop on the tour. Do you want to go in and say hi? Uh, no, we're good. 
Tell them you're doing great. Uh, uh, yeah. UA, by the way, is short for urine analysis. That's the drug test that people on parole and probation regularly have to take to prove they're staying clean. Anyway, back to the parking lot in Everett. Tony told me how he had cased this unassuming little bank over a series of days, studying the traffic patterns as well as the frequency of police drive-bys. Later on, Tony would hone in on closing time as the best time of day to strike, right around rush hour. Right, because for, for one, it's easier for me to get out and just blend in with there's cars everywhere, right? And two, the police response time is going to take longer because the roads are packed full of cars, so they can't, they can't get, get here as quickly. This particular afternoon, Tony parked the truck surprisingly close to the bank. Distance isn't the important factor, he told me. Well, yeah, I mean, the idea there is that I'm just making sure that nobody in the bank can look out the windows and see what vehicle I get in. Once I come around this corner and I'm out of their vision, they have no idea. I could have gone down to the, that way or over here behind. And, you know, you never, they would have no way of knowing what, whether I even got in a car. So when they call it in, right, they don't have much information to share. They don't have a vehicle description. They might think I got on a bicycle or something. On the day of the robbery, with the truck in position, the only thing left for Tony was to get up the nerve to go through with it. All the planning in the world couldn't help him with that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was scared to death. Like, are you sitting in your car giving yourself a pep talk? Well, this is an all-day thing. I'm trying to talk myself into doing this all day. I mean, I'd already planned it a couple days ahead. But when it came down to it, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm hella nervous. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm like trying to talk myself into it. And, you know, I even there, I remember, okay, there's no cars. And then I'd go park and then I'm like, ah, oh, I need a cigarette. You know, I just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to get to that point. The point where he could swallow the fear and just do the thing he had been planning for. The exact point, in fact, that Connor had talked about last episode. Counting to three before he opened the car door. Have you ever gone bungee jumping? Yeah, I did. Okay. It's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're sitting there and they're hooking the, because I did it up, I did it a couple times up in Canada. Um, you know, when you're sitting there and they're strapping all the things around your ankle and your, your nerves are going crazy. But once you hop out to the edge of the, the plank, you got to, it's, it's time to go. Finally, after days of casing and some unknown number of minutes spent giving himself pep talks, it was time. Time to walk into that bank and say the thing he would ultimately say to dozens of tellers in the Seattle area. Open the drawer. Large bills only. 20s, 50s, and 100s. No small bills. But this time, it was a little different. Tony didn't have his lines nailed yet. I remember walking in, and one of the tellers had one of those, like, cash counters, and she was doing putting a bunch of money through it you know so i was like drawer give me all that drawer as in cash drawer open it and hand over the contents she had blonde hair she was probably in her mid-20s and uh she looked pretty scared i remember the look on her face it could have been his daughter behind that counter or in another era his mom but tony's vision was so tunneled he was thinking only about the money she just complied as Tony had been told she would. And that was it. Tony stuffed the bills in the pocket of his hoodie and turned for the exit. Whether it took 35 seconds or 45 or 52, we'll never know. That's not a stat anyone keeps. To the terrified teller who Tony robbed, it probably felt like five minutes. Tony walked swiftly out of the bank, and then, as he moved out of sight of the security cameras, he pulled the beanie back up to the top of his head, 
and strode with purpose back to his perfectly chosen spot in the parking lot. $2,151 richer. Now, all he had to do was get away. Remember, Tony had studied the traffic lights a little beforehand, at least enough that he felt like he could time his exit so he didn't get caught at one. But of course, that was impossible in practice. And what do you know? Basically, when I pulled out, I hit a red light right away, which of course I was not happy about. Then at the other light, coming in the other direction was a Everett police officer. So I'm first at my light and he's first at his light and I'm sitting there and it feels like for a week, I I'm thinking I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking I'm fucked, this is it. This is, how th this is how this is gonna go, really? To say that Tony was at the biggest intersection of his life is a metaphor and then some. Sitting in a stolen truck with pockets full of stolen cash in full view of the cops. He was a sitting duck just waiting for the signal. Tick, tick, tick. We'll find out what happened when that light turned green next week on Hooked. I was like, you what? You motherfucker. Oh my God, I just sat in prison and, and you start robbing banks again. I was like, oh, fuck no. Hooked is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. The executive producers are Mark McAdam and me, Josh Dean. Our producer is Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Our story editor is Michelle Lands. And Sierra Franco is the associate producer. Fact-checking on this episode by Will Peichel. Additional reporting and research by Callie Hitchcock. Field producing on this episode by Bethany Denton and Kyle Norris. Original music by Mark McAdam and Doug Slaywin. Editorial support from Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and me, Josh Dean. If you're enjoying Hooked, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really does help other people find the show, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.